Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Kim Coleman Foote is the author of the novel Coleman Hill, inspired by her family's experience of the Great Migration from Alabama and Florida to Vosall, New Jersey, circa 1916 to 1980s. An award-winning writer of fiction and memoir, Kim's work has appeared most recently in the Best American Short Stories 2022, Iron Horse Literary Review, Echo Tone, and The Rumpus. Major honors include writing fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, New York Foundation for the Arts, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Phillips Exeter Academy, Center for Fiction, Yaddo, McDowell, and Hedgebrook. Kim grew up in New Jersey, where she started writing at the age of seven-ish. Her work focuses on marginalized histories, relationships between Africa and its diaspora, and gender and class. Currently in progress is Saltwater Sister, a novel about Ghana and the transatlantic slave trade, which weaves the stories of three young women in the 18th century and present day. 
Other honors include writing residencies from the Anderson Center, Hambridge, and Vermont Studio Center, a Kim Bilio Fiction Fellowship, and an Illinois Arts Council Fellowship for Creative Nonfiction. Kim also received a Fulbright Fellowship to conduct research about the slave trade in Ghana, where she inadvertently wrote a memoir about her experiences. An avid music lover and dancer, Kim created an online radio show dedicated to Congolese and African pop music. She can be found blogging and singing there as her alter ego, Kimmy Kimiana. Kim received an MFA in creative writing from Chicago State University and a BA in sociology and anthropology concentration in black studies from Swarthmore College. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Coleman Hill, a novel. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So a novel, we can just start with that because yes. let's talk about the form of the book and is it a novel? Is it, you would talk a whole, a lot in the back, auto fiction, you know, talk about that to start because this is a family story. Yeah. So it wasn't a novel at the beginning. It basically started with me as a little girl in the 1980s in New Jersey, which is where I grew up. And hearing my mother and her her siblings and her aunts tell stories about their childhood in Vauxhall, New Jersey, so much that I thought I was an honorary member of the, <laughs> the town itself. You know, but I used to hear things about like ice boxes and listening to radio shows so different from my own upbringing, you know, in the 80s. And I also heard about their their tales of abuse, and they used to laugh at some of those things, and it made me curious, why are you laughing at pain, you know? And then they also couldn't seem to see why certain people were like they were as adults, you know, who, who'd gotten abused when they were little kids. And so I'd always been fascinated by exploring those, those connections and the patterns that I was seeing as a child in my family. And it wasn't until I was in my MFA program back in 2004 I had an assignment for a creative writing, creative nonfiction course to write a story based on a photograph. And I chose one of my grandfather's three sisters, little girls, which is in the book. I saw it. <laughs> and yes, on page 27, okay. I know now. Yep. And the voice of the middle one literally spoke to me and said, I ain't afraid of that man or his camera. And I was like, what? Okay. Because usually when I write fiction, even though it's creative nonfiction, when I'm writing, I usually see scenes like movies, and then I have to use words to describe what I'm seeing. So her voice just powered through, did not shut up. I got a pen and a notebook and wrote down. And so that whole section came out in about 10 minutes. And I was like, oh my God. So that was the that was actually the beginning of the book, but it still even wasn't a book at that point. You know, I was thinking that, okay, I want to write about my family. This is how it's coming out. I felt that was spiritual permission to go ahead and do it. But I was also finishing my MFA thesis, which was a memoir. I had another novel on the table that I was finishing. And so basically I, I had all these family photographs and decided that I would build stories around them from the anecdotes that I'd heard. And also I'd done genealogical research on my family, but that was just my hobby. It wasn't again for a book, you know? So when people ask, how much research did you do? How long did it take you to write? It's a hard thing to answer because it's been literally all my life that this has been percolating. And so the key was actually reading Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kitteridge. When I read that novel, you know, I saw possibilities for a book because Olive is kind of the role of my great-grandmother who in the novel is called Celia Coleman. And she is just like this force, you know, but also kind of like a dark force where you don't see Olive in every single chapter of the book, but you feel her presence. You know, everyone is kind of like bouncing off of her and she gets one or two ch chapters in the book 
And I think that's because her her personality is just so intense and curmudgeon-y that you could not be with her for the whole thing. And then I saw my great-grandmother as that role in the family to all these stories that I'd heard. And that's when I was like, oh, this is a book. This can be a book, bringing all these tales together, circulating around her. Wow. Well, you also talked about all the, I mean, to your point about the research that you had a dream that buildings were falling down and that it gave you the the permission to go in and get the archives and, you know, the hidden Bibles and everything. It actually didn't give me the permission. I wanted to go in the house. I didn't care about the, it was my family who didn't want to go, you know, so I was, I just kept having these dreams and that was just reinforcing. And I kept calling my family because I was living in Washington, DC at the time. So I couldn't easily access the house. And so I had to call my family and be, please go in the house. There's something in there. You know, your aunt told you that there are pictures and Bibles. They're like, oh, don't believe her. She lies about everything. (laughs) And then my family calls me up one day and they're like, oh, guess what? We went into the house. And I'm like, yes, yes. Guess what we found? I'm like, what, what, what? We found pictures. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) So I was luckily able to, to make a visit to Jersey and go in the house. I mean, probably not that long, weeks before it was torn down. And I, no one had found the Bible. So my aunt said that they were in her bedroom on her bedpost. I went straight to the bedroom. The Bibles were there. I grabbed them. So all the stuff would have been lost, you know, thrown away, trashed. We had these beautiful painted photographs of my great, great grandparents, you know, these huge photographs, which would have been lost. And one actually appears in the book. And you know, so for me, those those were valuable. You know, other other relatives might have been searching for like, oh, I want something to sell, you know, some coins or like gold or whatever, jewelry, you know, but for me, the heirlooms for the family, those are really valuable and important. Wow. It's just amazing to think how much gets lost all the time. Yes, all the right. time. About ourselves, about other people. I mean, yes. it's like it's a miracle to even capture anything. But yeah, anyway. because people don't, again, think that certain things are important. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm someone, I, I've always had this avid interest in history, and maybe it's because as a little girl, again, I heard all these stories about a different time period. And so for me, it's it was always just fascinating being able to step back in time and touch artifacts that, you know, people from a bygone era had, li- you know, like shoes and everything, everything. So that was just always fascinating. But I know like not everyone has that same passion or interest. So when they see these old photographs, like, oh, we don't know who this is. This, you know, doesn't matter to me anymore. So we just get rid of it. When my grandmother passed away, my cousins were like, does anybody want all these pictures and boxes? And I was like, yes, (laughs) yes, I do. I I want everything. And I want to like shove them. They're all like scattered, you know, in any, any extra place I can find. Cause I'm like, how can we, you know, even recipe cards from my other grandmother. Like I want it all, the handwriting, all of it. Exactly. Exactly. You also mentioned that your mom was surprised at how well you captured her life. And you were like, what, did yes. you not think I was listening? Tell me yes. about that. <laughs> yeah, I was actually writing another novel at a certain point, actually when I entered my MFA program. And it was set in 1932, which is significant because uh, one of the date books that I actually found in my aunt's house was a calendar year for 1932. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So I, it was actually based on some of the stories that I heard. So I didn't even do research technically because I was just building in all the, the facts, you know, that I heard growing up. And I love, don't get me wrong. I love historical research. I wanted to be a professional historian at some point and really deep dive into archives and interview people and all that kind of stuff. 
But uh, for that, I just used my mother's recollections. And yeah, it was just like, did you think I was ignoring? Or maybe, you know, I think the thing is sometimes with children, we don't think that they're listening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though like they were children once themselves. And, you know, I I talk about my, my family members as children snooping in on, quote, grown folks business, right? But I guess people forget like you're a child and you absorb and you listen to things, you know, and you're you're also trying to make sense of different things. So uh, but yeah, she was just even even today, she's like, oh, how did you know these things? I'm like, uh, you told the same stories over and over again at every single holiday gathering. Yes. You're like, what did you think I was doing? <laughs> <laughs> Where is the credit? <laughs> so funny. Uh, it's not too late, by the way, if you want to be a historian. I feel like you're... you're- oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I definitely know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite stories that I tell... So I worked in academic student services for many years with college students. And um, one of my favorite stories that I would tell them was about this professor that I met when I was probably about 22, 23. I was in D.C., and this was when I was debating that I was going to be a historian or or pursue creative writing, or I was applying for this Fulbright fellowship to go to Ghana and do research. That was research for the other novel. I was doing hardcore research for that. And um, I met this this PhD, and she's you know very accomplished in her field. She's an anthropologist. She's traveled all around the world. I wanted to do what she did and interview people and learn about cultures. And I remember telling her, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And she just looked at me and smiled. She was probably like in her 50s at that point. She she, she smiled and said, I don't either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, oh, you can change, you know, things and you you don't have to stick with one thing, you know. So I think for me that that freed me up actually to pursue the creative writing because, um, you know, I realized that all my interests in history, I was looking at the African diaspora. I wanted to especially look at Latin America and African connections there with, with slavery I realized that all of my my research interests were feeding into my fiction, you know, and then I won the Fulbright Fellowship to go to Ghana for the year to to do research. So since I had gotten that, I was like, well, let me let me devote more time to the creative writing, because if I do a history program, I know that I won't have time to write creatively. And that's more important. Now you're just showing off. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not even showing up, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Like, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally I know, kidding. I know. But it's like, you know, when people say these things, it's like, it's something I love. I have a burning passion, you know, and especially for PhD programs, you know, the messages that I was getting is like, if you're not totally invested in this thing, you should not do it because mm-hmm. this PhD programs are average a couple of years. You know, you're spending a couple of years, you know, in schoolwork, working on a dissertation, and you need the longevity and all of that to really carry through. And this was something I'm like, I, I'd happily sit in some dusty old archives like that. That just like, yeah, I mean, I'd be just totally happy in a dusty archive, <laughs> like looking up documents and like getting a headache from, you know, <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to look at old scripts. So, yeah. And so with my family, even, you know, the fact that I was interviewing people, I was already incorporating some of that, you know, informally on my own because it was just exciting and fascinating to me. And one thing that you did through the retelling of all the stories is capturing the voice in which the narrator perhaps was speaking or you have a, you know, your style sort of progresses throughout the narrative of how the voice itself is developing. Talk about that. Yes. So it was almost accidental because that very first narrative came out in the first person, I. Mm-hmm. And when I started the other stories, they were they were in third person. But then this you voice 
came in. So there's three sections that are narrated from the second person, you. And I don't even remember how I chose that, but it just felt really natural because originally they all started with the same refrain and ended with the same kind of summary wrap up. And I did that because it was almost, so it's, it's looking at three generations of alcoholism in the family. And for me, it was almost like the same person was just kind of repeating, even though they lived at the same time, all three women, it was like the same person was just kind of repeating and kind of recreating that, that, you know, thing. And so the you voice felt really natural for that. But, you know, along the uh, uh, through the years, I've been reading various novels with these different voices, you know, for the first time, not realizing, oh, you can write a whole novel using the second person, you know. And then I was exposed to a novel written in the the collective first person, we, mm-hmm. you know. So after after reading that book, I actually wrote the the first section of Coleman Hill, which is from the we perspective, because I was like, oh, you can do that. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. And so, uh, so those, those pushed me to experiment and explore. And then there's one other section that's from the I, the first person, and it's another one of my great aunts. And the reason is because like, I feel like the first person is really overused, especially in contemporary fiction. You know, I feel like I, I pick up these books and it's like, the voice is not really right, I feel, because sometimes it's like, oh, this is like, it sounds like someone with an MFA in poetry. And how is that when, you know, your your narrator is 12 years old and you say that they haven't even mm-hmm. read a book, you know, and they, they're they not very literate. They don't hang out in literary circles, but they're talking about dewdrops on leaves. And I'm just like, <laughs> well, how is that? And there's alliteration and all this. How is that possible? You know? And so for me, I I was very careful with the first person voice. Um, Unless I had that person's voice in my head, like the first one that just came to me, it was a little girl (laughs) and she was speaking in dialect, you know, Um, and it was interesting because um, that other novel that I was writing in 1932, my character was my, I had two main characters. One was uh, working class, poor um, and black, and the other one was middle upper class and black. But my working class poor, again, who who probably didn't really read books, you know, <laughs> whose family didn't read books, they weren't educated. And she's writing from the first person, or was writing from the per- first person. And, you know, she's speaking with howevers and thus and therefores. And then later I looked at it, I was like, why was she speaking like that? Oh, yeah, because I was writing this through college when I was writing academic papers. <laughs> <laughs> and so that language, that that language had slipped into the right. I was like, this is totally the wrong voice for this character. You know, so when the pose, um, the first part of Coleman Hill came out, I was like, this is the voice that I should have been writing in. Right. But maybe at that point I was like, well, this voice is not sophisticated enough because this is considered like, quote, bad English, you know, but it's an English that these people spoke that I myself spoke when I was a little girl, you know, growing up at home that my friends spoke at school. You know, I was, uh, grew up in a predominantly black town in Jersey that we spoke on the playground, you know, and there's poetry in this way that we speak. Right. And I wanted to honor that and respect that. And so for the other section, um, my great aunt, she was a comedian. She always had everybody laughing. Her voice was really, really strong in my head, especially because I got a chance to interview her not long before she died, maybe a couple of months before she passed away. So her voice, her jokes, all of that were like really, really strongly in my head. But again, I wanted to honor the way that she spoke, 
right? So again, she was not someone who, she didn't even finish high school, right? She was not someone who was well-read, all the stuff, but she had a way of, of talking, of stringing together words that could make you laugh, you know, and telling stories that could really engage you. And so that's why I chose that first person. Wow. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And how did the voice and the writing inform the treatment of trauma in the book and how you wrote about that? So, huh. I think like it really hit me when my grandfather came into the book because originally it was supposed to be all from the women's perspectives. And then he just barged his way in one day <laughs> and I was just like, okay, grandpa. <laughs> I didn't want to go there because, you know, I had to talk about him part of his life as an abuser towards my grandmother. And that was something that I didn't learn until later in life, you know, that 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 happened. And it really sickened me and disappointed me because, you know, as a little girl, I wouldn't have never thought that about my my grandfather. You know, he seemed like very kind of almost timid, you know, but he was very tall, but like very quiet and just kind of like mellow, you know, so to hear that, like what he did, what to my grandmother and then have to write about that. But when I started writing about him, you know, I realized that again, I had to honor who he was with all his flaws, you know, and so, and also be true to how he would have interpreted what he did. Right. And so I realized that my, my writing was, was having this matter of fact quality, you know, so it wasn't like I'm coming in as a, as me, the author or the narrator or the author as opposed to the narrator. But, you know, I realized that I couldn't come in and judge you know, because I couldn't write about who they were if I if I was judging. But at the same time, you know, the way that I set up the book, you know, you have, so there's so many different family members who narrate, who tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And so you get to see one person as, let's say, committing abuse, but you get to see someone else who's a recipient of abuse. You get to see one else who stops the abuse, right? And so to see all these stories play out from different angles, it's like, well, Yes, the trauma happens, but I don't let people get away with the trauma that they're, you know, putting out there, you know, so that's, it's not necessarily judgment, but again, just showing you these different angles of people who resisted, 
you know, people who didn't think that that was right, you know, and ensuring that it's left up to the reader to make a decision. And again, I don't even think it's um, like judgment is a thing. It's just like being able to see more clearly, you know, the dynamics that are going on that make people do the things that they do, right? That, That make people have, you know, make people put certain labels on other people like evil or mean or whatever, whatever the term is, you know, so that you can see, okay, well, no one, no one was born evil or mean, you know, where did this behavior come from? You know, so really looking at the roots of that. Wow. So what do you most want people to know about your family? I just, I want to know just how they lived, you know, how, how, how the North was to them, especially, you know, because coming up from the South, like the North was presented as kind of a promised land, you know, just as it was for immigrants coming from the, from Europe at the time with the whole image of the streets paved with gold, you know, and especially for black folks escaping the South, it's like, okay, there, there are very dangers to your, your personhood living in the South at that time under um, segregation. And, you know, so they, they, they were so excited about the North and the economic opportunities, the educational opportunities, you know, but when they came, there were so many disappointments, you know, like a lot of the women were still domestics, like they were in the South. The men, you know, were getting factory work. They got paid more, but, you know, there was still discrimination. There was still racism. They were still held back in ways. And I think also for me to go down South and meet relatives who'd never left you know, and to see that they had advanced further than my family in terms of home ownership and education. It was infuriating, actually, because again, it's like, oh, my family, they're the ones that kind of got out of the South, you know, for better opportunities and ended up not really advancing more than the folks who stayed. But conversely, the folks who stayed, you know, they quickly told me that, well, the reason why we were able to do these things is because the people left. Mm, right. <laughs> so if all the people hadn't left, you know, because then the schools became emptier, you know, um, the student teacher ratio went down or our teachers were invested in us that they had more attention that they could focus on us. You know, so it's that's the paradox. You know, that's the thing that I want to, you know, hopefully get across to people that, you know, through my family, of, of course, there's so many other families that that left the South that the North also had these kind of complications. And tell me just a little more about your whole publication journey, Zando and everything. I mean, yes. very exciting. How did that all happen? And what's that it's been like? so exciting. Yeah. So it happened very, very quickly, but I have been trying to be published for many, many years. Um, I got my MFA back in 2005 with a memoir. And so that was like my official, you know, search for an agent. But I'd also sent my first query letter when I was 12 years old. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so because I was writing, you know, manuscripts back then. So I wanted to actually be the youngest person to publish a novel in this country. Wait, that's what I wanted. Oh, really? <laughs> no, hey. seriously. I I was like 10 years old and I would like go in yes. front of beer and I was like, I'm going to be the youngest person ever. Yes. And I would give like acceptance speeches. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, hey, you're the first person I'm talking to that shares that. So funny. I know. Me too. And then I think when I was like 14, I read in a magazine that someone had published, you know, or I was like 15 and someone was, I was like, you know, so I never thought it would take this long to get a book published because I was writing all throughout high school and and all of that. And like I said, I had the novel in college and everything. But, you know, my first manuscript was a memoir. And at that time, everyone was like, well, who are you? Yeah, the writing is Mm -hmm. good, but who are you? You're not anybody that we can't sell this book, you know? So then realizing like the politics and economics of publishing, the publishing world. 
And then I wrote another novel, which is the one that I went to Ghana for to do research for, which Sandal, you know, I'm so grateful that they purchased that book as well. That'll be my second book that's published. But it was years and years and years. And then Coleman Hill, I was actually writing, you know, in the interim between drafts of other manuscripts. There's a whole other novel that I started. <laughs> There's like so, a screenplay. There's like so many things that I've been working on all these years. And so at some point, everyone kept telling me, finish Coleman Hill, finish Coleman Hill. But, you know, years before that, it was finish Saltwater Sister, which was my kind of novel when I was working on the one from 1932. So I was like, okay, here we go again. Here we go again. This is, I don't know how many manuscripts in we have. So when I did finish it and I was like, okay, here's my agent search again. I can't even tell you maybe like the fifth (laughs) major agent search that I had done. And it happened so quickly. It like, like in a blink, I had an agent, you know, and then like literally in a couple of months, my agent is sending it out to editors because at the point when I was working with my agents and the consensus was it's almost done. Right. And so this is, again, a novel that kind of stuck up on me. I didn't even know it was a book. <laughs> then all of a sudden people are telling me, finish this book. And I finished it. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's pr- it's practically like it's really clean and done. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. <laughs> so basically, she uh, sent it out to lots of editors. And Zando happened to be one of the publishing houses that was interested. I had no idea that Sarah Jessica was a book person. (laughs) My agent mentioned the name. I was like, oh, there must be an editor named Sarah Jessica. Oh, that's so cool. Someone named their daughter after, you know. And so when we when we zoomed, I was like, oh no, it's her. It's it's real, the real Sarah Jessica. So it was just like mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And then the the deal happened so quickly, also. And like I said, Zanzo bought Coleman Hill, but they also bought Saltwater Sister. So after so many years of trying to get that one published, I'm so happy and grateful that, you know, it'll finally see the be out in the world. And so it's just been like a really, really beautiful experience. You know, I've heard again over the years, I've accumulated so many stories from different authors about their publishing experience, all the horror stories and ways that things can go wrong in publishing. It's like, oh yeah, I I took 10 years to get an agent. And then like, you know, right before the agent submitted, they died. And I'm like, oh God, you know, and then like, oh, my cover, they they put the, you know, a wrong picture on my cover, all this kind of stuff. And, And I have to say that my experience has just been so smooth. And the team at Zando has been so supportive and just so passionate. You know, everyone brings their passion and enthusiasm. So I've just been telling everyone it's like beyond wildest dreams, honestly, at this point. It's amazing. Because I had dreams. I had I've obviously had dreams since I was a little girl <laughs> I love about it. how to, you know, have my books out. But it's been actually beyond wildest dreams. So I'm really, really grateful for all of this. I'm so excited. That's such a great story. Mm-hmm. That's really great. When is the yeah. next, when is Saltwater Sister coming out? So it's uh, anticipated 2025. Oh, yes. Amazing. So I need to really get to writing and finishing. <laughs> <laughs> for real, finishing that for real now. <laughs> and what is your advice for aspiring authors? Oh, you know, right. Right. Tell your stories. You know, if there's something that you're burning to tell, tell it, do it. Don't let anything stop you, you know? And the fact that like, if you're wanting to publish, publishing can be very, very difficult. You know, the, I mean, some people, it seems like it's so easy. Like, you know, you have the 23 year old, this is their first book and they get published and by 24, their book is out and they've had the string of bestsellers ever since, you know, but it doesn't work out that way for everyone. 
you know, and I would say like, if you're not again, like, just like with the PhD, if you're not passionate about that story, if you don't have the commitment to it, it might not happen, you know, so figure out a story that you really just can't, can't let go of, you know, because that, that is what will keep you through and build community as well. The community of writers, friends who believe in you. I could not have done it for so many years if I didn't have that community around me. Love that. Amazing. Well, thank you, Kim. This is so great. Um, Thanks for sharing the story so we can all sort of cheer along with you and sharing your family story and and all of that. So congratulations. Thank you. Okay. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.